So we're currently walking through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and um, to give you a feel for that, you know, we just kind of set this up to where, you know, I know whenever you look at me, you just think he's on a mount, just by what's, what's here. Um, and as we do, we're uncovering this kingdom ethic that is a part of its content, and we are discovering that it is as followers are to act and react and just live in this world. And it has already, in just a few short weeks, been uh, challenging, um, maybe a bit convicting, maybe a bit confusing, because when, when we really start to dive into some of what Jesus, really all of what Jesus is saying here it begins to look so juxtaposed to the norms that are lived out in our culture today. And we started off by uh, looking at some of these uh, foundational blocks, as it were, um, beatitudes. Uh, he started off the greatest speech ever told, giving us these, these foundational stones of character. Speaks about persecution and being a peacemaker and a hunger and thirst for righteousness and having a pure heart. And if we're going to be someone who depends on Jesus and someone who stands with Jesus, then that's the kind of character that begins to get lived out and impacts a world. So then what happens is Jesus begins this walk through what theologians call the six antitheses. And they all begin with, you have heard, or you have heard it said. And at some point along the way, he says, but I say. And for each one of these, uh, Jesus quotes scripture and, and often gives a current interpretation of what they understand that to mean or to have meant. And then he begins to lay out his own interpretation that really starts to embody a righteousness that starts to look rather off the charts. Jesus contrasts a focus on behavior with a focus on the heart. And we looked through four of these already. We've been through murder and anger. We've been through adultery and lust. We've looked at marriage and divorce oaths and honesty, and each time it seems that he draws a line between how we typically relate to the law, which oftentimes has this almost pseudo-religiosity to it, versus the truth of a reality that God sets up in his love letter to us that invites us into a real relationship with him that is righteous and impacting the world around us. And tonight we look at the final two of these antitheses, and they conclude chapter 5, which brings us a third of the way through the sermon. Retaliation and loving your enemies. Now, if you have small children in your house, or if you've ever had small children in your house, or if you've ever been in a home where small children exist, you've probably been exposed to, matter of fact, if you've ever been shopping, you've probably been exposed to retaliation at a children's level. We've seen that in our home, certainly. It might have to do with toys. It might have to do with spoken words. Um, as I was thinking about that, though, it's, it's not fair for us to get all pious about that and think, oh, well, that wasn't us, because each one of us did that as well. 
right? We all lived in that retaliatory way. I remember when I was in seventh grade, and I should have already grown out of it to some degree, right? But uh, I, I remember this one kid in middle school uh, kept on talking about my mama. Now, for whatever reason, culturally, that's not appropriate. It wasn't back then. I don't know if you can do that now and get away with it. But back then, you couldn't. That, that was just something you didn't do. Now, I don't think he had ever met my mama. I also don't think I even understood the words he was using to demean my mama. But with that being said, I had told him to stop. He chose not to stop. I invited him to go to this one particular area, and we both set down our backpacks, at which point a crowd had gathered, at which point I hauled back and hit him in the face so very hard that his nose began to bleed and his big, thick glasses broke and fell off of his face. And he began to rummage around for them on the ground. Nobody realized he was as blind as he was. He tried to come after me. Uh, It was more like the Apostle Paul speaking about beating the wind. That's what that looked like. He just couldn't even find me. By the time it all ended, which was a matter of about maybe 10 or 15 seconds, he was bloody, I was standing there victorious, sort of, and we were both being hauled to the vice principal's office. Um, At that point, true story, the vice principal looked at both of us and said, you've got two options. I can call your parents right now, or you can both get SWATs. I I just love those days. Those were, you know, I mean, so, I mean, Zero tolerance, blah. I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking, how beautiful was that as a kid? It's like, come on, give me your best shot, right? And so he did. And, uh, and I know some of you are like, did that really happen? Like corporal punishment? Yes, I remember my parents signing a note. You can do whatever you need to do, whenever you need to do it, right? And it was on file and they did it more than once to me. You're like, they are not going to post this sermon at all online. There's no way. Retaliation in seventh grade, not my proudest moment. In this era of social media, retaliation quickly turns into bullying as inappropriate pictures are posted by an ex. Or cyberbullying is easily transmitted across airspace of school campuses with apps like Yik Yak. If you're a sports fan, retaliation is commonplace, right? The pitcher hits the batter, and then the next inning, what happens? The team of the batter now is, you know, I mean, it's just like, then, it, then it's like retaliation. Now the other team is hitting the other batter, and it just kind of spirals out from there. It's all fair and love and war in baseball. Football, basketball, personal fouls, ejections, game suspensions, often due to retaliation. As adults, though, it looks a little bit different, doesn't it? Because now, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in our home, relationships can get unhealthy quickly when partners or coworkers are reacting to each other negatively because how they perceive, oh, I don't know, uh, they've been treated or abused or neglected. Retaliation is a part of the social dynamic throughout the course of our life. And Jesus steps into this subject matter In this greatest sermon ever spoken. And he says in verse 38. For you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay. 
So uh, he's connecting them back to this Old Testament passage. In Exodus, we find this law, Exodus 21, 23. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And Jesus is referring back to this particular law, what was called the lex talionis, or the law of retaliation, which is really misunderstood because it wasn't about making sure that you got back at somebody else. That's not why this law was set up. It was given to the Israelites in order to protect. The law was created so that the one who was doling out the punishment did not go overboard. The law kept things, quote-unquote, fair. But what happens in this particular passage is Jesus throws fairness out the window. He says, that's not to be the bar that is set. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, to strike someone across uh, the right cheek with the back side of your right hand was a significant insult in their culture. As a matter of fact, it was much more of an insult than it was an actual act of violence. We find Jesus saying here, it's better for you, to, for them to insult you twice. Whack, whack. It's better for them to insult you twice than for you to take them to court over that matter. So is Jesus just saying that we're supposed to live these mamby-pamby lives, taking, being taken advantage of left and right? I mean, is that really what's in this greatest speech ever told? That doesn't seem quite how Jesus lived. Uh, he spoke out against the Pharisees when they verbally attacked him in chapter 23 of this particular book in, in Matthew. During his questioning by the high priest, they struck him, and he didn't know who it was, and he wanted to know. In both Matthew and Luke, he advised his disciples to actually defend themselves. So we come back to these words and we place them in context and we understand that Jesus has been going through all of these weeks that we've been looking at this passage. He's been going to matters of the heart. He's been going to hate, to lust, to... And here is no different. What he he recognizes is that his followers were going to have to have a change in their default. And I think sometimes, you know, we do too, right? Their first response when they're living in this kingdom ethic can't be entitlement or revenge or vengeance or fairness or settling the score. Their first response is to be love. Their first response is to be grace. Their first response is to be motivated by a desire to see reconciliation take place, forgiveness take place. Love and hope and redemption and the person to receive the glory would be God. You see, the world ethic that Jesus understood that was at play there and is still at play today is an ethic of, I deserve fair. And yet the kingdom ethic he was introducing to them was, it's not about me. 
And so we sit here and understandably say, well, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's not fair that they get away with that. It's not fair that that settlement was given. It's not fair that that nurse contracted that disease just by doing her job. It's not fair that I have to, it's not fair that my boss, it's not fair that my family has to deal with this when nobody else does. It's not fair that some parents outlive their kids. It's not fair that this person has that debility. It's not fair. And it's not. And I've been thinking about, you know, I was, I was thinking about fairness even. I, so, I, so, so I go I go on this, I don't remember if I told you this a couple weeks ago, but I go on this run, right? And so I'm about two and a half miles into it, and all of a sudden my head just starts to get really, really painful. Like, so painful of a headache that I can't run anymore. I can count on one hand how many times I've not finished a run, and most of those times had to do with needing to go to the bathroom. That's a whole other story. And so I'm about two and a half miles from my house, and I walk all the way back home, right? Because my head hurts so bad. And so that was 40 days ago, approximately, and every day since I've had a headache. And so I go, I go to this neurologist, and they run all the tests and everything. And, and, and so here's the bottom line of the story, not to give you this full medical report about me, but just to say that um, uh, they determined it was occipital neuralgia, that there's some kind of uh, thing going on with the occipital nerve, and you know, there's some damage there somehow, some, some way. I must be a real aggressive runner. I don't know. But whatever happened, um, you know, so there's, there's this pain, and it's mainly in the back of my head. And so um, they do this MRI just to make sure there's nothing else going on. And in today's modern society, you have this portal, right, that you go to, and they, ha- they post results and everything. And so there was an email that said, oh, you've got results. And I'm like, okay. So I go there, and my doctor hasn't even contacted me yet. And true story, it says MRI, and then it has comments, and underneath it, it says two words, unremarkable brain. And, you know, I was, like, insulted and relieved all at the same time, you know? Um, and so, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm in this mix, and, and I'm going to go back to the neurologist for a checkup next week, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to get this thing figured out completely, and, and it's, it's better than it was before, and I'm not on hydrocodone, so I'm not worried as much about what I'm saying to you tonight, and, you know, so things are, get, things are progressing, Right? Um, but you know what? I think about my condition versus all the other people that we look at on this prayer list that the staff gets every single week as we pray over that on Tuesday. And I look at that and I go, wow, it's so tempting to go, boy, that's just not fair. It's not fair that they have to go through that. That's not fair that that happens. That's not fair. That's not. And you know what? We live in a broken, fallen world. And we have decaying bodies. And yes, it's right. It's not fair. But I think what God is speaking to us about through Jesus is that our default should be different. And maybe in order to keep ourselves from moving into the not fair trap at whatever stage that we get into that, maybe it's just a good idea for us to, on occasion, if not every morning, have a pep talk with God so that he can remind us, you know what? It really isn't about us. It's about him. And it's for his glory. And you know what? If my first response is despair or revenge or frustration or entitlement or my rights have been violated or anger, if that's where I go, then maybe it's time for me to rely on the Holy Spirit so that maybe a change in my default can occur.
He goes on, Matthew 5, 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus, again, referring to the book of Exodus here. Um, 26 uh, verse of chapter 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You see, in legal matters, you could sue someone, and even if they didn't have a single item except the clothes on their back, you could sue for that. And if you won, you could actually take, if you're ready here, you could get their underwear. Right? I mean, basically, when you look at tunic, that it was an undergarment that was what they wore closest to their skin. And oftentimes, someone in that culture would have one cloak and two tunics. And the cloak is what they would use as not only a blanket, but also their sleeping bag and covering and whatever else. And you, as a point of law, could not take that from them, although you could take their underwear, their undergarments. Now, it was, not, it was seen as mean-spirited for you to do that, right? But let's just say... In the case of this particular law, in this situation, what Jesus is referring to, that that actually happened to them. And they sued them, and they didn't have anything left, and that's all they had. And that was taken from them. But the law said, you can't take the cloak. We've still got that. It's okay. He says, you know what? Go ahead and give them the cloak. You're down to one tunic. Go ahead. They didn't deserve it. The law didn't require it. It was certainly an undeserved gift. Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to blow their minds. Take them to a place that they would never go. Give that to them. What else is he saying here? He's talking about this Roman soldier. We've already seen that played out here with, uh, with our good friend. Enlisting the Jewish citizen to be their baggage handlers, walking an extra mile, possibly even two miles, possibly inconveniencing them up to four miles to get back to where they started. Why? It was a gift. He was saying, here's something that you can do that, yeah, that Roman soldier didn't deserve that of you. What's the world ethic? The world ethic is, I do the minimum that the law requires. I do the minimum. If you're a school teacher, you see that played out every day in your classroom by somebody. I'm going to do the minimum. But as adults, we live that way a lot as well. And what he says is, here's this kingdom ethic. And this kingdom ethic is grace rules. So the kingdom ethic actions of a follower of Jesus in that context, they would speak volumes to the person who has taken them to court or the soldier who demands both their physical and their time commitment. But you see, catch this. Here's what's happening. Jesus has a bigger perspective. He knows that he's headed to the cross. There's going to be a day when his disciples don't have him in physical form next to them, but they do have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is going to help them be able to live out this kingdom ethic so that whenever they go that extra mile, whenever they give that cloak that is undeserved, and that act of grace is lived out in that moment, it is powerful. To the unbeliever. 
when they say, and by the way, I'm a Christ follower, and Jesus gave everything. It was all about grace, you see. And in this moment, that's what that looks like. To live a life of grace, embodied so that the world can connect the dots to the God who offers that to us. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, he's tying this back to Leviticus 19, 18. It says, to love your neighbor as yourself. They knew that. The Pharisees tried to live it out. But Jesus blew their minds later. Because if you go all the way into Luke chapter 10, remember what that story is? It's the Good Samaritan. Now, here's what's crazy about that story. They perceived the Samaritans to be enemies, and yet Jesus calls him the neighbor. Hmm. The Pharisees also thought they had a handle on the whole hate your enemy thing. I mean, really, it's not mandated in Scripture, but this is what they had understood. They understood that they were actually kind of helping God out with this. Because if they really hated their enemy who was also God's enemy, then they were like enacting some sort of judgment on God's behalf toward that individual. That's what they believed. So Jesus comes to them and he says, you have heard it said, and rightly Leviticus about love your neighbor, and rightly so through tradition. Hate your enemy, but he says, hold on a minute. Here's a teachable moment for you. I've got a different ethic. The world ethic is, I am judge. Me. I get to judge. The kingdom ethic, he says, is, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. He's the ultimate ruler of all. The Pharisees thought they had it all figured out. Who was in, who was out. And isn't God fortunate to have us to enact his judgment on all those that we, I, I, mean, I mean, he hates So who, who are our enemies? And, and, how, and how do we judge them? Maybe it's through verbal smearing. Maybe it's through, I, I don't know, talking about them. I, I, on, on a grand scale, is our enemy Congress? I don't know, the president, the CDC director? <laughs> the coach of the team that just played our son's team? ex-wife, wife of your ex-husband, your boss, your co-worker, the neighbor across the street, the checkout person at Walmart, the person that doesn't know how to drive in front of you. And I, I think when we get into that moment where we don't necessarily say enemy, but in our minds we think, well, that person can just go to. And Jesus says, you know what, you've just judged, and here's the kingdom ethic I wanted to introduce. Maybe this bends your perspective a bit. Maybe when you see that perceived enemy, you would think, I hope and pray that they fall in love with Jesus. Justin Martyr, an early Christian apologist, martyred somewhere between 162 and 168. He had this quote, though beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts and chains and fire and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen, the more do others in larger numbers become faithful 
He had a bigger picture. He saw it. Because you see, loving our enemy, enemies means that we trust God with the situation. And we recognize that our response isn't going to be based, right, any longer on what we perceive that they deserve. That our response instead should be a mirror image of what God's response has been to us. And as we move toward the end of this passage, maybe we'll be reminded about Philippians 3.18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their belly, God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Do you know what Paul is speaking there is where each one of us who are now Christ followers were prior to that move from creation of his to child of his. That based on that description alone, we find ourselves having been in that place And look at what God poured out on us. He ends with Matthew 5, 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you and reward, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's a continuation of the previous verses, and what Jesus is saying here is, look at how the Father has treated us without favoritism, and aren't we glad? And I think a key word, a couple of key words to to look at as we close, this greet, this word greet here, in, in the Greek, we actually have that as not only a greeting, but also it's a blessing. So in essence, what he's saying there is, hey, have you thought about that as you greet regardless of who the person is, that you also speak blessing. This other word, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word there, perfect, is teleos, mature, complete. Um, Jesus could have very easily been thinking about Leviticus chapter 19 as he spoke those words, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy because what is God after in this life he understands the life that we live is he looking for sinless perfection from us there's only one who has accomplished that and that is Jesus but based on how that word is defined in the Greek possibly yes he is looking at godliness and a life that strives for holiness and a life that's empowered by the spirit of the living God active and powerful in me it's not a perfect life but it's a godly one so as we close chapter 5, do you see how all of these antitheses, even the ones that we looked at tonight, tie back to these building blocks of beatitudes that he started the sermon with? Because I can see blessed are the persecuted all over tonight. See blessed are the peacemakers all over tonight. I can see blessed are the meek all over this passage. Because you see he starts with character and then says, okay, this is how, how you live that out. As a Christ follower, what is our goal? Our goal is to know God by spending time in prayer and in his word. And to make him known on this earth by living a life that looks less and less like the ethics of this world. And more and more like the kingdom ethic modeled by Jesus. So the other day, 
my girls, my older girls, told me about something that happened the night before. I had come in late. The routine is typical, typical that I'm up there and um, with them as they go to sleep, but I wasn't there that particular night, and they told me the next morning that as uh, they were getting ready for bed, Lindley, our almost three-year-old, um, who's a night owl and stays awake way past all the others, uh, was in their room, and they turned off the lights. They had gotten into bed, and Lindley walked over to them, tried to pull the blanket up, and then prayed for them. Um, so Lindley spends time with me upstairs when they're going to bed, and she watches. And you know, when she gets older, I hope, I really hope and pray she doesn't emulate the dad after the Baylor loss that knocks them out of the top four. But on that night, with my older girls, she was me. And that was good. And in this passage, Jesus says, emulate the Father. Because that's going to be good. And it's going to impact the world. And that kingdom ethic is going to make an eternity of difference. Will you close your eyes with me? God, help us to do that. And to be reminded every day that although your ways are so opposite to what this world values and how it reacts, that even though Christ is bodily away from this home that we live in right now, that you are here. And that, God, what you've invited us to do as your emissaries, as your ambassadors, God, you have called us to pull the blanket up on those who desperately need to feel the warmth and the hope of a Savior and a King who cares and loves and offers eternity. And so, God, may we do that by going the extra mile of grace, by living the life that draws attention to it, not because we are attention hogs, but because you are and you deserve it. And God, even in our worship, as we conclude, as we take communion together up front, as we give in the back, as we do what it is that your spirit calls us out to do as we conclude this time. God, thank you for meeting with us in this space, for speaking to us in this moment. We're listening, God. You are welcome here.